Welcome to another episode of Jews on Film. My name is Daniel Zana. I am a documentary filmmaker and editor and a Jew. With me, as always, is my co-host, Harry Ottensaucer. Hey, Harry. Hey, Daniel. What's going on? I'm Harry. I am your uh, friendly neighborhood Jewish film podcaster. And uh, this week, we're joined by a special guest. We have a really uh, special guest today. I would say at this time of the recording, she's probably the person I've known the longest uh, friend-wise, you know, from on the pod. Art director at Tablet. Australian extraordinaire, Esther Werdiger. Hi, Esther. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your uh, your being here. You know, as we do when we start the show, we kind of want to ask folks about their background, both Jewishly and movishly, I don't know, movieishly, whatever the word is. So I wanted to start out and just ask, you know, growing up as a kid, what was your experience like with Jewish films? Um, I come from a very orthodox family, but my family also loves movies. Um, and movies were always, I think, something we could do together and then talk about and laugh about, like when there was nothing else that we had in common. You know, my parents would like go to the movies every Saturday night. I remember like Sunday morning, I'd like talk to my mom, be like, what was it about? Like, tell me about the movie you saw. I was like, I loved movies so much. And then I, I did it. I took a cinema studies major at university, which was so fun. And I've always just been a big movie fan. I think from in my experience, I think getting to see anything Jewish on film was like thrilling and super exciting. And, you know, that would be films from Hollywood, like Australian cinema is much smaller and doesn't really have much of a Jewish voice in it. Maybe in documentary, there's more. Yeah, no, we always got a kick out of movies and it was such a an easy place to go to for enjoyment and pleasure and bonding. And um, so that's with me too now. Like I love, you know, my parents come to visit. I'm like, mom, what do you watch on the plane? Tell me about what you So we'll talk about the movie show on the plane. So yeah, no, just love movies. I don't watch as much as I used to. I haven't been to the theater. You know, I don't go that often anymore. I mean, COVID changed things, having kids change things, leaving the city changed things. But um, it's something I miss a lot because, I mean, I'm one of those people who used to go to the movies alone a lot. That to me is like so pleasurable. Like have a quiet day, preferably during the daytime. I feel like Mm -hmm. going at, depending, I guess. But it's just like, it's so pleasurable. But I haven't done that in ages. Um, But that's what I like to do. I have this streak going where I think, all the movies that I've seen alone by myself happen to be some of my favorite movies ever. And I'm yeah. trying to understand if it's just because the experience is so great that maybe I'm just starting off in a great place. But it also, I happen to see some like pretty good movies that hold up. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure what's causing what, but I agree with you wholeheartedly there. Movies I've seen alone, they stick out in my mind. I think you're not interested in what the person next to you thinks at all. Exactly. You're, you you, uh, you're allowed to completely escape and... Mm-hmm. Like one of the movies that come to mind that I remember seeing alone was um, the Safdie Brothers movie, Good Time. Mm-hmm. It was just amazing. I mean, that was like not long before COVID, I guess. And I just remember like being so in it. I mean, you're just like. That's a kinetic, like high energy sort of movie, similar to Uncut Gems. I mean, like very oh my God. on the edge of your seat the whole time. Oh, my God. Amazing. I'll never forget Uncut Gems. <laughs> I wanted to hop back to your answer because you talked yeah. about the experience of growing up and asking your mom about what movie she saw, but you didn't name any particulars. Are there any like notable Jewish films growing up that made a indelible impact on your. I don't think my parent, like I know ne- I've never seen Fiddler on the roof. There's Same. a few very basic Jewish movies that I've never seen. We're, we're saving that one for like our hundredth episode. Sure. If you want to come back. 
I will. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to see it first. Like movies that you've seen bits and pieces of. Sure. And I remember my parents like, you know, Blazing Saddles and I'd hear about them and jokes from them, but I never actually saw them actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first, I remember the Big Lebowski was such a big deal. And I just remember the, you know, the John Goodman character. Like, I just think that blew my parents away. And I, they just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. And it, like, it's such an over, the thing with Big Lebowski also is that it's, it's, it's a very good movie, but it's liked in such a broad way. Right. on many different levels. Mm-hmm. And I think you can, it's a movie you can approach very superficially and enjoy and like, oh, uh, you know, don't fucking roll on Shabbos, whatever. But beyond that, it's actually a very good movie. But I, I remember like just, you know, getting to see that and like sort of um, what else? I've never seen Ten Commandments. I've never seen X, all these like classic Jewish movies. Sure. We, didn't, we didn't like sit down and watch them. I mean, my parents would go out and see like big action movies. That was kind of their thing. Ah, okay. So there wasn't really like, you know, I remember when, I remember when Schindler's List came out, that was mm-hmm. like a big deal. There was a, an Australian premiere that my parents went to. My uh, my father's father was a survivor. Right. And uh, my mom met Ben Kingsley at the premiere. And that was like wow. such a big story for her. Sure. Like I remember that, but they I don't think they went out of their way to see particularly those films. They were just people who loved going to the movies and that kind of entertainment. So you never saw like an American tale, Five Old Mousekowitz? Oh, that kind oh, of oh, that was another one that came to mind. I was like, I wonder if I should rewatch that. That we did. We watched that for sure. Uh-huh. Um, that's Spielberg too, isn't it? Probably. I don't know. No, I did see that as a kid. It's so funny because now that I have young kids, I watch so many kids' movies and mm-hmm. they're so, um, they're devoid of Jewishness. There, There isn't a big, you know, like there's Encanto and there's Coco and there's Moana, sure. but there's not yeah. going to be like a Jewish one anytime soon, I don't think. The truth is out of mind. Like I love getting to see these other stories on film. Like sure. I'm very, I really like Moana. <laughs> Fair, yeah, totally. It's great. We're the all about Encanto like here. They like Encanto like all the time. I actually want to jump like latch onto what I think you were describing in your answer. You were talking about a lot of these movies and you said it didn't feel like you you're, you and your family sort of actively pursued the explicitly Jewish one, but you were describing that feeling of watching another movie, watching something like The Big Lebowski and just being struck by, you know, there's Jewishness here. We, we've spoken about this on the podcast in the past, but I think a lot of what we're trying to discover here, you know, obviously we're, we're going to the Schindler's List and those big films that have so much Jewishness. Eventually, yeah. When, yeah, but we, we spoke about this in the beginning, just how like, you know, I, I think I, this is coming from myself, but I come from this place where I, I grew up thinking that there was my movie life and my Jewish life. And there was a very different thing. And I had this very Hollywood sensibility of what movies looked like. And that feeling I think you're describing of just seeing all of a sudden someone even say the word Shabbos, right? In a movie, it's just, there's something really energizing about that and really exciting. And I think still when we do these podcasts and we're watching these movies, and oftentimes it's a movie like the one we're discussing this week that you were that, you know, that you or someone else recommends to us and you watch it and all of a sudden, you know, a, a yarmulke shows up or they start talking of, they have a Jewish wedding like happens in this movie. It's just... There's something particularly right. exhilarating about it. And it's just cool when that overlap happens. That, that's kind of why. I love it. I, I feel like it's geeky almost the way we, because it's almost, you can't really control the response you have to it, where it is very exciting. And it's funny because you see it a lot more on TV these days. I feel mm-hmm. like with like sort of prestige television, there have For been sure. so many shows with strong Jewish characters and subplots. But so, there's something about movies where it's different. It is rarer in movies and it's rarer that it's done well. I listen a couple of weeks ago to your licorice pizza episode because mm-hmm. I had just seen it and I just loved it. And oh, um, no, I love, I, yeah, no, that was great. And I, cause I saw that movie and I just, I was 
on a cloud for like the, for mean, the next week. The Shabbos dinner scene. It's like, I mean, the Heimsessers don't do that to you, you know? By the way, I feel like ideologically committed to calling them Chaim because sure. I think that's how they say their name, right? They don't, that's how they, that's what they call themselves. I'm like, it's the Chaim. No, that was great. I also love the trend of people having their, like people having their parents play their parents. Amazing, like, right? Aziz Ansari did that in his show and that was like so my cute. favorite thing about it. It is cute. It's cute without being like twee. It's funny. It's like, um, voyeuristic somehow you know because it's like from the real but yeah it adds that air of like authenticity i want to do a quick follow-up question and we'll get into it this week we're going to be discussing the heartbreak kid directed by elaine may uh we're talking about the 1972 version not the 2007 version starring ben stiller just no i do want to discuss that at some point we'll we'll get to it fascinating what that movie does to this movie I haven't seen this. I haven't seen the other one. So we'll we'll have to get your take on it. But I wanted to ask Esther, why did you pick this movie? This movie feels kind of like a rare moment to me. It's so 70s. It's so Jewish. It's directed by a woman. And there aren't there really aren't a lot of them from that era. Like Elaine May is very singular. She didn't direct many films. I think she was probably sort of blackballed, I think, at some point. I mean, I think it was probably very hard for her to do what she was trying to do. I think she's such an interesting person. I think she's so funny. She's still alive. Like, she's going to die soon. Um, she's had such an – I mean, I, you know, she's very old. Like, we don't have her for much longer. Like, I feel like it. It's she's a good person to celebrate. But a lot of people, like, don't really know about her so much, I think. I also love, like, baby Charles Grodin. Like, Charles Grodin to me, older Charles Grodin does not register to me as very Jewish. Like Beethoven dad, like Charles Grodin. Do you remember? Yeah, him like Waspy, yeah. right? He's like yeah. uptight Waspy dad. Right. But he's but he's so Jewish. Like yeah. everyone in this movie, Neil Simon, who wrote the screenplay, Bruce J. Friedman, who wrote the short story that the movie is based on, which is great, by the way, and a very quick read. I also love, like, I think so much about how Mike Nichols did The Graduate and Elaine mm-hmm. May made The Heartbreak Kid. Right. And to me, they're almost like brother, sister. They're like companion films. Right. Yeah. This is, this is their their films belong to different genres. This is this is satire. This is like a deeply satirical film. I love that she directed her own daughter, Jeannie Berlin, who mm-hmm. who plays Lila. Um, I like what this. Even before I ever saw the movie, I wanted to watch it because it was like I want to see what Elaine May did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a it's such a Jewish genre genre film. And it also this is all part of the satire. And we can talk about it later. But you know. At one point in the movie, and we'll go over it, we take this sharp turn to another part of the country, to another type of people. And and Jewishness is not mentioned at all. Like to me, that's also part of the satire, which is right. sort of an interesting choice. Sure. So no, I was very I was drawn to it. And also, you know, when you watch a fun 70s film, you also just look at it for the set and the costumes and Amazing. the music and Amazing you know, it really like transports you. It's fun. So that's why I wanted to choose the movie. And I thought maybe, you know, I, I kind of had a look through some of the movies you guys have talked about recently. It's fun to talk about something from a little bit uh, uh, further back. Back from when we, we were kids, right, Esther? Back from when we were kids. We were we had those we had those hoops with the sticks. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, and it's, uh, I don't know. I just thought it would be fun. And and then I sat and watched it to sort of reaffirm. I was like, mm-hmm. yes, this would, I think there is actually a lot to unpack here. Well, I'm excited to get into it. Yes. Harry, before we get too far, two things. I wanted to plant a little, this is a quiz for you both. This is, and should you I be, get, should ex- I be taking notes? I feel you like should I be taking con- notes. So what musical cue shows up three times throughout the movie and what significance does it play? Unless, don't answer now. Save it for the end. Oh, oh, okay. 
Yeah, unless you already know, but I wanted to- I already I wanted, know, I already oh, know. Damn it, all right. Well, maybe I'll scrap this bit, forget no, it. No, no, I think it's good. And I actually haven't given it that much thought beyond, okay. so maybe you have an insight about it. And and the audience can play along at home. Exactly. You know, keep that in yes. mind. And you can mention it on I, Instagram or whatever. Is. Do I know? <laughs> hey, here, one sec, let me pass you a pen. Here you go. Harry, can you hit us with that IMDb summary while Esther's looking for her pen? Oh, I love I that. I love can. that. Because I was like, do I do this? I'm so glad you guys are doing the summary. <laughs> no, you know what? I'm, you're, you're, you are lucky that you don't have to do it because it was a real tough one this week. There's two really? great ones, honestly. Well, oh, okay. I'm torn. I'm going to cheat by reading one of them and then telling you why I wanted to read the other one. But I won't waste everyone's time with two full summaries. So People are busy, okay. Harry. They don't have time People for People are busy. Let's, let's keep this I'm short kidding. and quick. Um, I'm going to start with the first one. And it just reads... A newlywed man on his honeymoon has second thoughts about his marriage and falls for a different woman. That's it. You know, that's it. That's it. But, but is yes. that not the movie? In it some is. ways, that's yeah. the movie. That's the movie. Yeah. yeah. The, okay. The other one I'll give a, a, like an honorable mention to. I'm not going to read it because it's actually much longer and gives, I think, the details that you're craving, Daniel. Sure. But one thing that I did want to point out, as I've been doing in the last couple episodes, they refer to Lenny when they introduce him as New York Jewish Lenny meets tall blonde Kelly. So... There's a okay. little bit of Jewishness kind of thrown in there. And I always like pointing that out because then it's like, you know, maybe we're not reading too far into this that he's Jewish. Like that's that's really part of the plot, according to sure. it says here, Jeremy Perkins, the, the user submitter that wrote it. So Thank Jeremy's you, Jeremy. on the same page as us. Appreciate that. Awesome. Wanted to point that out. Well, with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss Heartbreak Kid. Welcome back to Jews on Film. This week, we're discussing Elaine May's 1972 film, The Heartbreak Kid. And uh, Daniel, you said you wanted to share a little bit more about Elaine May. Why don't you get us started there? Yeah, thanks, Harry. I think it's helpful to kind of contextualize who Elaine May is and, you know, kind of help frame the movie a little bit. So Elaine May and Mike Nichols had a comedy group called Nichols and May. Elaine May was a founding member of the Compass Players, like a, a largely influential uh, comedy group that start, you know, also had like Del Close, who was sort of the, I would say like the godfather of modern improv. His his disciples that went on to found the UCB Upright Citizens Brigade. You know, after that came Second City, and so a lot of this film, I think I viewed it as directly tied to like improv, and I'll talk about a little bit more about like the improv aspect of it and like how that sort of informed the style of the film and and sort of some of the dialogue, but just a little bit of uh, setting the table before we get started on the meal to carry over from our last episode, Harry, of the food metaphor. But yeah, I mean, I think I love the film starts off on like a New York street and it just gets started. Like the credits are like very basic. We we meet our first character, Lenny Cantro. He's a salesman for sporting goods. And you just see him going back and forth to different businesses, meeting people, and then he's at a bar and then almost instantly, I think within like the first five minutes, he meets Lila, who is played by Jeannie Berlin. Like you said, Esther, that's Elaine May's daughter. Any thoughts on just like jumping right in and getting the getting the party started so early in the movie? I feel like within like 10 minutes, they're already getting married. I think it is a fast courtship. Yeah. I think it is a fast courtship. And then I think immediately then you go onto that thing where you, where you find out that they're, she's, she's waiting to have sex until they get married. Yeah. So I think this actually is a fast courtship and it's someone who is a desirous, he wants something, right? Like he's trying to, he's a person who wants, and then he kind of gets, um, and also I like how he, you know, he rehearses that hello in the mirror you see him before he goes out, you know, he's sort of like ready, he's ready. Yeah. Um, 
I think it is quick and I think they're young and this is what you do, right? And Yeah, I, I think everything you said sets up Lenny's character so well. I mean, even the rehearsal, like that's called back to and jumping all the way to the end, but later in, in the movie when he's just, you know, quoting the same sort of conversational speak right. that he has with everyone. And yeah, yeah, yeah. he's kind of this like, you know, fraudulent hack, you know, we'll, we'll dissect his character, I'm sure, throughout the film. I had a lot of thoughts watching him, but mm -hmm. that's, it's setting up who he is. And even the speed of what you're talking about, exactly right. Like he's just you know, you're supposed to feel like they rushed into this and we're going to see that's obviously a big part of his character and that's kind of how he thinks and it's just looking for that sort of next deal. And I think the other aspect of what's going on here is it's just great tight filmmaking. Like this is a movie that doesn't have a lot of threads and layers and I'm going to, we don't have to go into it, but in the remake that we were talking about, I mean, they have this whole different setup for the character and it takes them a lot more time in the movie to actually get to all this. And this is like, it feels like an adapted short story in a way that it just has this very sort of tight satirical window that it's trying to tell. And it, like, it doesn't waste time. It doesn't waste space with anything. It's here's what you need to know. They got married and you know, he, they're moving into it very fast. They're waiting till they get married to have sex. And that's kind of, yeah. that's setting us up. And, and, if, and if you read the, the short story, the setup is exactly the same. I mean, it's the pacing, it suits the, it, it, it's spiritually very close to the, the Bruce J. Friedman story. And it's also not, that's not what the meat of the story is. That's what we're trying to get past to get to the drama. It gives us just enough character and setup, but yeah. the drama really is only a couple of days, you know, from yeah. the sort of honeymoon. Yeah, but we, we get a sense of the class they come from. We get a sense of who they are very quickly. These are like lower middle class New York Jews who, you know, are maybe aspirational in a certain way, but very much of their background. I think the sex thing is very interesting, especially with Lila and Lenny. I think, you know, I talked about this pre-pod with Harry. Yes, we do talk outside of the podcast. I'm shocked. He says, oh, you know, nobody's waiting anymore. And she says, I'm waiting. And then after they get married, like she's really like focused on pleasing him and making sure that he's good. Is it, you know, is it exactly what you thought it would be? Is it exactly or better? Are you glad we waited? How's it to feel? And he's like, stop, like, stop asking me all these questions about the sex and just be in the moment. And like, I thought that was interesting. And then I want to just talk a little bit about the Jewish wedding that they have pretty, as far as like, if we have our like Jewish wedding checklist, there was mm -hmm. uh, no kippahs, no chuppahs, but we did get a broken glass. We got mm -hmm. a mazel tov. And we had a Havana Gilev for those people, you know, keeping track at home. There's like an incredibly like reform rabbi wearing like a black gown, but no type of head covering there was like one or two yarmulkes in the crowd maybe oh yeah okay That's um good. yeah i remember like a big white one you know you have the old lady talking about nachas you know they should they should have a lot of nachas i was like yes that you need you need one of those and also i love those like you see that in a lot of movies the new york city like apartment wedding mm -hmm. you know like i'm like i'm thinking of like the movie that comes to mind is um Harper, nora efron which begins with like a second marriage i think but it's uh -huh. such a similar like and that's a, that's a wealthier crowd of people, but just these like small apartment weddings, which actually seem like very charming to me as someone who probably spent too much money on my wedding. It was a good wedding, Esther. It was a good wedding. Thank you. But it's such yeah. a type, you know, you, you say that in movies sometimes. It's like in someone's living room, sure. like on the Upper West Side. Yeah. It feels quaint. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great like establishing moment in a film that like we're saying, you know, is not very long, is kind of very, you know, condensed, but they they set side, time aside and it's not the longest sequence, but there's this like rapid montage of the Jewish wedding because that's like clearly very important to the scene setting, you know, like you're saying, yeah. Esther, in terms of like the satire and, you know, who these people are, these sort of, you know, lower class, you know, Jewish New Yorkers, like that's clearly such a big part of it. And I think that also 
in some ways, you know, sets up who their characters are. And that gives us a lot of shorthand into, I definitely think in how, you know, sort of Lila starts to act and sort of when, when some of her tendencies kind of start to come out afterwards, you kind of have it in the context of this sort of Jewish background that they're giving, you know, this, this neurotic Jewishness that they're kind of establishing. And then we'll get to this when we get to the end of the movie, but it also kind of portends some of the pivots that happen to the characters later on in the movie. But it's just cool that like this movie, effectively the first scene is this sort of huge, uh, identifiably Jewish wedding. You know, that is a big part of the rest of the story as it unfolds. For sure. And I think you also see what he's, what he's willing to leave behind and what he's going to betray. That's and I also exactly, think through the yeah. wedding, you see that you see that Lila's very earnest. I think she's very, very, very in love with him. And mm. you don't get the sense that they're being pressured or anything. Well, her at least. like, And I probably, I'm, I'm hugely sympathetic toward Lila through the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. And I think she was played very kind of in an interesting way. She's not the butt of the joke, I don't think. And I'll talk more about that later for sure. But but you see that it's very genuine with her. I think she adores him and is ready to just like do it, you know? Already, like they're in the car, taking the New Jersey Turnpike down to Miami Beach. And like, <laughs> she's flashing her boobs to him. She wants, he's worried she's going to show the trucker. Uh, what are you doing? Come on, put that down. Nobody can see. Oh, truck drivers can see. Guys, how it starts to look down and see. What's wrong with it, Lenny? Come on! Come on! Later on, she's playing with his chest hair. That's already annoying him. Like, she eats a Milky Way in bed. Like, I feel like, like, already, he's, like, regretting his, he has buyer's remorse almost instantly. But it's like she's on her honeymoon. She's almost doing everything that you'd expect. But he's getting cold all of a sudden, right? Also, did you notice that scene where she flashes her boobs in the car? Yeah. She's wearing one of her earrings. You yeah, I did that? notice I that. I was, like, that. I was like, oh, like obviously they were playing and maybe, sure. you know, she's putting his ear. But they never showed you when that happened. He's just right. suddenly like, and he has his big boobs with his like cravat, you know, that's like not a dress. But yeah, that's a, that's an aside. Oh, and then we have the egg salad. Then we have the egg salad Ugh. scene. Her face, like, and just like so schmutzy the whole movie. Like, and just like, the, did I get it? Did I get it? She's like wiping it up. No, still mm-hmm. there. And then later with she's, the lotion. She's so earnest. Just... She's so earnest. All the lotion. The lotion. Oh, no. I'm not such an egg salad guy, but I will say that one hit a little bit close to home. I was like, oh God, I hope, I hope I clean, I keep my face clean. Cause I was just, you know, in his seat and he's like, she kind of wipes it off and he says, like, did, did I, she says, did I get it all? And he's like, yeah, sure, yeah. but you kind of see it on her it's face. Still but, there. but just to jump into this sort of characterization that we're talking about, like, I agree with you. I think this, you know, Lila character, she's kind of just letting her guard down, feeling very comfortable, like yes. dropping the facade. And sure. one thing we know about Lenny is that Lenny never drops his facade. You know, he's all facade. He's a salesman. So I, seeing, I mean, he's a salesman. So seeing this kind of like, you know, this realness of who she is, this comfort, the the insecurities when they're having sex, the just sort of relaxed, you know, vibe that she's giving, you know, when they're in the car, like, it's just like you said, it's very it's not not quite subtle, but just sort of very. his face does a lot in terms of just you, you could see him <laughs> working through it in his mind, like what's going on. And she keeps saying, like, this is, you know, we have 40 more years, 50 more years. And every time she says that, you know, he can't even. Isn't take it terrific? Isn't it terrific? Terrific. Exactly. Like the word uh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's so interesting because the characterization, you know, and the way that they place these two characters and I'll get into it a little bit now, because I just think that Lenny, I, I kind of. I want hated is a strong word, but I increasingly disliked him. He's he's like the worst and the way he treats her. And it's just, I'll I'll make the point now, you know, I don't know if we'll get back to this, but just the the newer sort of heartbreak Kim, just because this is kind of the scene where they really depart, Mm -hmm. you know, the, uh, 
the Lila character in, in the sort of in the remake in the Ben Stiller remake is like actually insane. Like is the butt of the joke is like uh. certifiably like like really ridiculous and crazy and like off-putting and offensive and like it's almost the, the, the movie and then it, it places sort of Ben Stiller as this very sympathetic like what did he get into? He didn't even want this. Uh, like we feel bad for him. And it's a total sort of like gender realignment and it takes away all of the satire and it turns it into this like you know, how much would it suck if you were a guy and you got screwed into this, you know, crazy woman? And wouldn't you wish that you could just fall in love with someone else? And it's just, it's it's so upsetting in the context of just what this first movie is trying to achieve and the way right. that it's kind of casting Lenny as this like, like, I mean, you called him a schmuck. He really is this sort of like sure. performative salesman who like very clearly wants something out of Lila and it's probably just sex with her and, you know, whatever communal cultural stability that comes with it but you know sheds that sheds all that kind of very quickly and it's just it's a totally different characterization that we see in these first couple of scenes i read so so the bruce j friedman story which actually was published i think the year that the graduate came out 1966 which is a couple of years before the movie it was published in i think esquire i think and i found online like the original magazine spread has like oh. a great illustration and it has a little dedication that he's written bruce j friedman at the very top that says this story is dedicated, I'm paraphrasing, he's like, to any man who has ever thought for like a, even a split second that his wife isn't the most wonderful person in the world, <sighs> which I just thought was great. And Love a reminder that. also that like, this is satire, like, you know, you are allowed to have these thoughts of, you know, these moments do happen. Like, what if you actually did something about it? You know what I mean? Right. If you do start dating someone and you go on your first trip or you decide to travel with a good friend of yours, there's always the day that you hate each other. There's always a day that you grade on each other. Mm-hmm. It's a process that you really have to get through. You have to see this thing through. And it's almost like from the first second, he's unwilling to see it through or give it a shot. Like it becomes apparent so quickly that he doesn't know what to do beyond feeling totally trapped in this situation. Oh, totally. And so like you alluded to, just to kind of move the plot along. So Lila and Lenny are now in Miami. They're on their honeymoon. And almost immediately, you know, the aggravation from Lenny's part on whatever Lila is doing seems to just build and build and build. They go out to the beach together. And that is when we are first introduced to Kelly. Um, I wanted to talk about the camera work. And in general, I just feel like it's very like handheld and like really nice. But Kelly, uh, played by um, Sybil Shepard, you know, comes in and you know, she flirts with him almost immediately. Her appearance, you know, like our Lenny character is sitting on the floor enjoying the beach while his wife, I believe, is... She's teasing her. Yeah, yeah. Oh I was laughing because that killed me when she was just like, two, just two seconds, just two more seconds, yeah. just two more seconds. And she's just like teasing her hair because she's trying to like make it nice and big. And it's then just she's like, just like, so... I'll see you down there in 10 minutes. <laughs> it was just so... Oh, just like so nebbish. I don't know. It was just like not. I, I I love her. I mean, she never gets any kind of assurance from him. She never gets right. any kind of compliment from him, encouragement. No. Really, she's abandoned immediately. Yeah, um, and he's down at the beach. He's you know he's hitting on Kelly. You know she flirts with him. She's like totally backlit. We just see like her blonde hair, straight hair. She's wearing this like really nice swimsuit. They're flirtatious a little bit. It's a very. It's interesting the swimsuit differences. It's like a very. It's a very plain. I mean, she's beautiful, so she's gorgeous. It's like a blue one piece. No, the first one is black. The first plain oh, oh, black, black one, and then the oh, second right. day is blue. And then you know, Lila has like you know, she has like a honeymoon outfit. But also, what do you make of those shots of the sun? Do you know there's like a oh couple yeah, of shots those like right very dizzy kind of. We don't always get into the sort of shot for shot breakdown of these movies. There's, I mean, we could read some Jewishness into it. I'm sure we can come uh-huh. up with a stretch there. But I did write down when I was watching this that 
that shot of her face kind of blocking the sun. I, yeah. I said it was spectacular because there's this moment. It's right. It's when Kelly's character, like you were describing, Daniel, is standing over Lenny mm-hmm. and she's kind of like, you know, Lenny's spot. looking up. Yeah. And yeah. And Lenny's like looking up and the sun is kind of glaring in his eyes. And then all of a sudden her face kind of appears in front of the sun and she gets this gorgeous backlighting, but she's kind of blocking the sun. So she's like in his frame. Yeah. And as he's like talking to her, she's kind of moving, shifting a little bit. And the right. sun keeps flashing in his eyes. And it's like, it's like he's looking at a mirage and he's just trying to like ah. make her out like what he can see her in the sun right and I, it was just like spectacular filmmaking i really just appreciated that scene and it definitely casts her as this sort of perfect blonde in contrast to you know the jewish woman with the big curly hair that was kind of you know struggling and <sighs> you know antsying her way up in the apartment and, and that sort of contrast is immediately set up it's we're supposed to know you know that Kelly is a threat, you know, all of a sudden sure. this guy that's, he's been kind of wavering in terms of his faith to his wife. All of a sudden he's, he comes across this, you know, beautiful blonde woman kind of masked in the sun. Object and it's of like, desire. Yeah. Oh, she's exactly. like a goddess or something. Very clearly. Yep. Yes. And she's such a flirt. I mean, just that, oh. what's the first line when she says you're in my spot? Like it's a great yeah. line. Really. Oh, yeah. It's just funny actually. But she just goes right in there. And he's sitting around, he, he looks around on the beach and it's just all sand around him. There's literally nothing near him. But it's just interesting contrasting the two in terms of like the swimsuit, the hair, and then just like the sexual adventureness. I wouldn't call it, whatever. Let's just say like, you know, Kelly is so sexually aggressive and like she's taking a very like masculine, traditionally masculine role of being the aggressor, of being like she's found prey and she's hitting on him and she's being very flirtatious. Whereas Lila's a bit more sexually inexperienced, a little bit more, what do you think? Is this okay? Does this feel good? You know, I think just contrasting the two, I think is like, it's sort of night and day for me. At least that was my read of it. That's my male read of it. But, you know, I just, I just thought like her being so much more, she was the one who like flirted with him initially. She saw him at the bar again later on. And she's with the opening lines and the flirtatious stuff. And he says, of course, a girl like you is named Kelly Corcoran. I thought thought that was a pretty funny (laughs) line. You know, and then, you know, his wife does eventually come down. They spend some time at the beach and he's trying to make sure that Lila puts on sunscreen, which sort of is an important plot point because later on when she comes back, she's completely sunburned. And I think at this point, Lenny has hatched a plan to keep his wife, Lila, under a more or less house arrest while she applies creams for the rest of the week. <laughs> and so he goes out and he flirts with Kelly. I mean, that that seed just adds on to the sort of Lenny is the worst person kind of mm-hmm. treat because, you know, he's he like he makes it all her fault and is just, you know, awful to uh, to Lila. And then he just says, you know, like, oh, you're going to have to be stuck in the room all day. Like, I guess I'm just going to go down to the beach alone. And it's just like and she's like, what will I do? And he's like, well, you, you don't have a choice. You have to stay in here. You Like, she's like, we could just sit in the shade. And he's like, you can't sit in the shade. They're raising the shade like I have to go. And it's like you're on your honeymoon. You don't have to go to the beach. You can sit with your wife here, even if for some reason she's not allowed to leave, which obviously she can but you know if you're gonna trap her like you could also stay with her and it's just it's it's whatever it's manipulative it's toxic it's all the terrible terrible traits but what, I, love what gaslighting. I was just gonna say that oh word. absolutely the g word <laughs> came absolutely. out there we go no definitely i mean no he abandons her immediately and the you know the string of lies that he comes up with like immediately just to kind of cover the tracks i mean it's like he just he's just on to the next thing already it's very cruel and she's very trusting. I don't think, you know, she doesn't suspect anything at the beginning. I don't think. Why would she? I mean, they just got married, like, you know, like she days has ago. no reason. Yeah, days ago. Days. I mean, like, I was sort of alluding to it earlier, this sort of improv background. <laughs> like, I think, you know, he wants to go downstairs and get a bottle of beer. And then he run. he like totally makes up this whole notion of fi- finding an old army buddy that he runs into. They meet up, like 
he just is able to just come up with all this stuff off the cuff, like very quickly, no hesitation whatsoever. I'll say two things about that. One, I, what I loved about that lie, he has this whole lie about meeting his former army, you know, a fellow soldier who saved his life and whatever. And we learn later on in the movie that when he's talking to uh, Kelly's father, he says something about, you know, going to the army. And he said, you know, going to the army was tough. I mean, fortunately, I didn't have to go overseas because of a minor back injury, <laughs> which I'm sure is something he lied about. And it's just like, this guy is such a crook. But the other thing that I'll mention there is that let me I, I want to pull up the uh, the the line because I wrote it down. But um, I was just reading about, you know, what you're saying, this sort of improvisational style. And, you know, this was famously a lot of the dialogue was written by Neil Simon. And mm -hmm. I, I read here that that Neil Simon had a contract that stated that none of his dialogue could be changed without his permission. And Elaine May, as a filmmaker, is very improvisational and loves going sure. with the improv style. And basically, they said that they would film two versions. One was with the original script, one where it was more free flow. And wow. the story goes that after two weeks on set or a week on set, you know, Neil Simon kind of left and was like, great, shoot your version kind of thing. And that that's kind of what, what went with it. But there's something, you know, that Elaine May style is definitely infecting, you know, his character. And I, I didn't read the short story, Esther, so you could tell me if that's, you know, sort of in the short story already. But this sort of free flowing, quick on his feet, lying, like just says, just keeps filling, you know, the empty space with words to kind of get get his way in every situation is uh is definitely part of his character and i would say comes from that elaine may style of comedy he's such a far i mean he's so full of shit but he i mean he's he's so unlikable i think he really i think he is a classic schmuck i think that's what he is yeah no it, it, it's fascinating and then i mean you guys yeah i guess keep the plot going but just then Go you have it. this other woman who's such an interesting character too because She's so she does initiate in many ways, but then she does a step back thing, yeah. right? That she won't do anything that her if her father says, then she won't do it, or um, you know that. And then and then I'm sort of rushing, but later on when she was like, you know, yeah, you have to make your own decisions, things like that. But yeah, no, she's prey. I mean, she's such a yeah. I mean, I guess it's not is that waspy? She's it's Minnesota, so she's more um, she's she's very strong. She's yeah. strong and she's smart and she's like untouched you know what i mean sure. like i think she's also sort of quite oh yeah yeah she's virginal in a way too they play this sort of like chastity game later on where like right. they're taking off all their clothes yes. and try not to touch the, you know but right, like uh right. you know, there's i just want to top off you know put a little sprinkle on top for how much of a scumbag this guy is um not only does he lie to his wife about army buddies and things like that he then like the next night or that you know he promises lila that he's going to go out to dinner with her he cancels because he's meeting uh, Kelly's parents and you know who don't like him at all I think Kelly says something like you know the mother he has seems a, the mother's really fine the dad who's the dad. he seems right? to fall for his uh his games he hasn't met you but from appearances he doesn't like you he doesn't like you right the dad right. now becomes the next thing to overcome yeah and you know he lies about a car accident and things like that and I think you know the dad is totally I think like you said Esther like Kelly is like caught her prey more or less she's got him on the hook and now she's just going to kind of back off and play it cool and then he has to kind of like run and pursue her and he's like but we madly. sort of never know what she wants like it's actually no yeah she's what actually she wants. It's, she's a bit tepid. it's really yeah. him it's his desire that creates this momentum and there's constant momentum in the movie like immediately it's like he says it right out like i don't know how i'm gonna do it but i gotta end my marriage and i'm gonna come to minnesota and it's I'm very like, quick daughter. it's very quick Marriage is off. It was just one of those dumb things I rushed into, like joining the army, except this time I'm not going to wait around three years to get out. 
It's like so quickly he's really willing to turn on Lila and go for Kelly. And he's decided to like, he's going to leave Lila and he's going to pursue Kelly. And I think what we learn about Kelly later on is that for her, this is definitely a game of a sort mm-hmm. of attraction. I mean, we spoke about it in the beginning that she was, you know, flirting with him. Clearly she instigated. She said, you're in my spot. There was nothing sure. there. And then when he actually comes to her and says, I made a mistake. I'm leaving my wife. I'm going to pursue you. She says, well, we're going back to Minnesota and tomorrow, like, or today, like right. this, this was kind of just like a fling. Like, and then even when later on in the movie, he comes to find her, she's like, oh, that was so long ago. Like I just, she really it's thought of weeks, that as a yeah. fling. Right. And exactly. And I think even and jumping ahead, we'll work our way here. But when they actually have their sort of first night together, when they play that game of attraction, I mean, she talks about how she's like, here's the game. It's we both take off our clothes and get naked and kind of approach each other, but we can never touch. And that's it kind of represents where she is. She loves the sort of the chase, the tease and like, you know, that kind of getting close to him. But she's not looking for the same ends that he is. And we know from you know the beginning of the movie that's obviously not where Lenny is. Lenny is the one who wants to have sex a week before the wedding and can't wait. And is just like, I want to have sex with you. And kind of once Lenny gets past that point, it doesn't seem like he has much more in him or much more interest in him with, you know, whoever his sort of, you know, prey, so to speak is because, you know, he kind of moved on from his wife very quickly and you kind of get the sense that his relationship with Kelly might not last very long either. There is, I feel this like unsaid thing. And again, I think this is part of like this, the sort of, the satirical face of the movie that he's an amoral New York Jew who's coming after like this waspy girl. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is she, could you call her a wasp again? I don't think it's the right word for her. I don't know. She's a shiksa. Like, well, you know, she's like a perfect shiksa. I was going to go with non-Jew this episode, but if you want to go shiksa, go for it. I think I think she's an idealized shiksa. I think okay. I think uh, from the okay. perspective of the, okay. the the Jewish writers and filmmakers and actors. Sure, and sure, then sure. I think. You know, they're creating a perspective of maybe other people who might see this sure. totally morally bankrupt, like Jewish man who's clawing at the door to like sure. be with the daughter. But again, the Jewishness is not named. This idea, you know, I mean, maybe that's me projecting. It's like a, it's like a Jewish insecurity that, like, oh, this is how they see us. Like, this is this is the desirous, like, horny, like, amoral, like, schmuck who's like. Now you're not going to come to the Midwest to like get our daughters. Defile our daughters or whatever. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's like a corrupting force or something. I mean, sure. it's hilarious to me that he, that he gets her. Like the fact that they get married and have this church wedding. It's the whole Spoiler thing is alert. just like, oh shit. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I think, I think what's so interesting is that I, I noticed kind of going the other way almost like she is an idea of a sort of, you know, of like this sort of non-Jew, like to him, because I think we see as the movie goes on and when he kind of meets her family, right. he talks about just wanting to, his big, like, you know, saying that he keeps repeating is he wants to just give back to the land and we shouldn't yeah. take so much. And he wants to live farm. Like, it's, it's his idea of like this, like non-Jew, like, culture. Uh, like, it's, like the dream it's, is to be a farmer think, and give back. I think huh? it's just what he thinks he's supposed to say. Cause that's gotcha. what he thinks of as like, like he is, I think this whole movie, and this is a thread I wanted to talk about throughout, and we'll get to this, especially with the wedding scene you alluded to at the end, but sure. it's a lot of him running away and sort of escaping his, you know, his marriage and how he sees Lila as this sort of, as we're reading, and I think is pretty much there, this sort of like typical, like Jewish neurotic caricature, almost like he is looking for the exact opposite. So instead of the city girl, he's looking for the country girl and he's looking for this, you know, woman of the land with this, you know, white picket fence, you know, nice family. And like he he's trying so hard to kind of chase this dream to the point that 
I think he doesn't actually see her. Like he sees her the way that I think the movie sometimes casts her as this sort of perfect virginal woman that we were describing that was like, you know, worshipped in the sun. And she's just, she's just this idea to him, you know, she is like perfect. Like there's that scene later when he like sees her naked, you know, as I was talking about. And he, he says, and this is another one of the sort of Jewish things I noted in the film, but he looks up and he says, Thank you, God. I've just seen your masterpiece and I thank you. I mean, in the in the most literal sense of the word, she is objectified by him. And I think she represents the sort of antithesis to the sort of Jewish lifestyle and marriage that he finds himself in in the first half of the movie. Right. That scene where then he goes and he has dinner at her parents' house and has his bullshit spiel about like how the food is honest. I mean, this is honest food. There, there's no lying in, in that beef. There, there's no uh, insincerity in those potatoes. There's no deceit in the cauliflower. This is a, a totally honest meal. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just, I've right, never he's heard just such full a of shit. I mean, I, I like shit, that yeah. the dad calls, uh, the dad kind sure. of calls him out from the very beginning. Um, and again, hilarious to me that he manages to like, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm skipping ahead too much. You are. I was just going to, I was going to catch us up there. They're not even divorced yet. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Pump <laughs> the brakes a little bit. Yes, so, I have to get divorced first. Yeah, yeah let's get, let's get them divorced. Um, you know, so, so Lenny and Kelly are at this point hanging out almost exclusively. Lila's basically, like I said, on house arrest, nursing her sunburns. She's watching Emma on TV. So shout out to Clueless, a previous episode, adaptation of Clueless. Anyway, all of our episodes are interconnected in the Jews on Film universe and somehow. I you did know, not but pick I, up on that. Oh, yeah. I think I well, I think they mentioned something about Emma. And so I'm assuming it's that. Jane Austen's Emma, which is an adaptation. You know, Clueless is an ad- adaptation of of Emma. So I think the lies increase, you know, Lenny goes on a cruise, uh, much to Kelly's dad's chagrin. He like jumps on last minute. He (laughs) goes on this cruise. He's like completely sunburned when he comes home. He lies again about a car accident and the court, he had to go to the court case. He's on the courtroom steps. Oh, it's just like, they they, they they have to come early in Florida because it gets hot. (laughs) I mean, the way that he just like thinks of this, that's like impressive, but also very scummy. And mm-hmm. I think at, at some point, you know, he lays the cards on the table to to Papa Corcoran and he tells him, you know, I want to be married to your daughter. I'm currently on my honeymoon right now. It's a bit of an awkward situation. I don't like one goddamn thing about you. Uh, well, uh, initial judgments very often are misleading. See, I found that out to, to, to my uh, sorrow, sir. Now you come hanging around my daughter on your honeymoon hang around your wife don't hang around my daughter <laughs> but if, eventually uh lenny decides it's so funny. It's he's so gonna, funny lenny's gonna take lila out to pecan pie and shellfish like he promised her and he's finally gonna set her free he's gonna rest his conscience a little bit by ordering this food um and then just kind of like freeing himself of lila before he pursues uh kelly um i just want to point out they are eating shellfish in the movie and then they have, you know, pecan pie with whipped cream. Um, but, you know, he seems like so happy after he has this discussion. And Lila is like nauseous. She wants to bark. It's like, I, I like you better now. I, I want a quarter to go to the bathroom. He just like pushes her down. I want a quarter. Yeah, I no, I thought she was going to vomit. Oh, I thought there was going to yeah. be puking or something like I that. I was waiting for that. I read somewhere that, you know, that scene where he's kind of like not letting her go to the bathroom, which yeah. is just, you know, another tally in his list of terrible things. But, yeah. you know, his energy, like you're saying, is so giddy and like relieved. And it's, I read somewhere that it was almost like he wanted her to be excited for him. Like, look, I actually found my next pursuit. Like, you should be happy. And this then she, and then she should like, be excited too, because right. now... 
you know, he's like, you're 22, you have your whole life. Like, exactly. Like just enjoy. And it's just, you know, there's a very clear disconnect. And my only disappointment with the film was that there's no redemption arc for Lila. Like I just, Mm -hmm. I wanted us to see her again, but at that point, she's kind of, she's out of the movie, you know, she's She's totally disposed of. I also want to talk about, I don't know if she's wearing an amazing outfit in that scene. She hasn't been up to go out at night since they got there and now she's all dressed up. Yeah. And, you know, she has her hair all done, but she's wearing an almost like seventies, like Pocahontas. There's like a, with the beading, it's almost like a native American. And it's funny. I mean, you know, you have like Kelly, who's supposed to be this like perfect salt of the earth, like true American. And then you have, you know, Lila, who is like, you know, she's like a New York Jewish girl in these like outfits. It's just like right. too much. It's like, it's like um overboard, you know, this sort of trying to access a sort of Americana, but clearly it's like camp, you know, right. but no, it's such a great outfit. And um, it's such a, it's such an awful scene. He is, he's totally giddy. He's so excited. He's like done. He's like, he, you know, yeah. He's trying he's, to like let her down easy, but it's not possible. No. It's, it's he's so excited. Sad. He says the best night of our life. Aren't you happy about tonight? <laughs> You got the car. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, so yes, exactly. Right. So thank you. So Lenny essentially meets up with a friend who who he then promises Lila like all of his material possessions. I with think the it's exception. a family member. I think it's like, I think it's a family member who was yeah. going back to see to, to, I mean, I guess annul, right? They couldn't, it's an right. annulment. And I mean, he wants to get on the next bus like right away. <laughs> like he's ready. He, he, leaves, he leaves everything to Lila. And uh, this is the second time our musical cue is playing. Um, it first appears at, at the at the first wedding. It then plays at this point, and it also plays at the at the last oh, wedding. Oh, I'm thinking of a different musical cue. I'm thinking of "Close to You," the Carpenter song that I'm thinking, they dance you know, to, and then she sings in the car. This is the part where I answered the quiz from the beginning for those who are paying attention. Oh, the song, you know, "Why Do Birds Suddenly Appear?" So at the beginning, they're playing it on the piano. Yeah, at the wedding. They're playing it. They have like a string version of it during the bus scene, I believe. And then at the end, I believe they're also either singing it or playing it on the piano. So it's oh, just kind of like a okay. nice... We are thinking of the same, same songs. It actually comes Why up a couple times. Birds, they... da, 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 da. Close do, to you. Do, do. Is that what it's called? Yes, yeah, a carpenter song. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And they so sing we... it also on the road trip when they're coming down, when they're driving down to Miami. You remember she's singing and he says like, you, you have a really lousy voice. Oh, he's such a scumbag. Ugh. Jeez, it's called close to you. Okay, okay. Hold I think on. so. Hold on. I don't know if the I don't know if the carpenters wrote the yeah, song, but that, it was like a big hit for them. Yeah. Okay. So this is okay. You're right. It's called close to you. But anyway. Um, yeah. That definitely. That's, that's the, the song, and that's like yeah. that's our musical. Um, yeah. And so so now they're divorced, and he's on his Greyhound bus, heading to Minnesota to meet up with Kelly. I guess she exchanged information with him because then he shows up in Minnesota on this college campus where he goes from a very warm, comfortable Florida to a very cold Minnesota where he's very ill-prepared. And he already, like, symbolically, he's out of place. He's, like, uncomfortable there, like, physically uncomfortable. I mean... He's Jewish. You see already the people look... The people they cast for that scene, like the like boys that Nordic she's walking boys. with. Oh. Yes, just immediately. It's just you're in, like, a totally different place. And at, at some point they 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 say that it's, like, 
too below Fahrenheit, something like that. But it's no. which is unimaginably like, cold for me. We, we hear like like we hear like four or five weather reports in a row where it's like he's <laughs> listening like to some radio, and then you hear another one, and someone's like, "It's going to be two degrees below today," and then someone's like, "It's actually going to be as bad as fifteen below today." It just it just keeps getting worse and worse. It was ridiculous. A quick thing about that weatherman, that's not a Minnesota accent. That was like a very, very, very thick New York accent. And I was like, unless this was like a New Yorker who moved to Minnesota, Elaine may probably cast one of her friends as the weatherman. I looked it up. There was nobody in the credits, but I thought it was like, it was like a funny, I don't know. I found it enjoyable, but yeah. You you don't actually really hear like any Minnesota accents. Like none of the characters have um, any kind of regional accent. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Like, I, also, Lenny is not, he kind of has like a, doesn't have much of a New York accent either, right? Well, he's, he's actually, he's from Pittsburgh, Charles Gordon. Right, 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 right. That would explain it. You know, but, so just, uh, so Kelly, he meets up with Kelly, uh, Lenny meets up with Kelly. She's a college student. She's 21 years old, I think about to turn 21. Um, very young kid. I don't know how old Lenny is. I would wager a little bit older, if I had to guess, because he served time in the army. And he's mm. a working professional, but you know, she's on college on her college campus, hanging out with her friends. It's unclear if she's like romantically involved with one of these uh Norse gods, but uh immediately Lenny tries to butt in and he's waiting for her. And then he pulls out another improv thing and he pretends that he's from the Department of Justice and is trying to smell this guy's cigarette to see if it's weed or anything like that. But I thought that was like a very clever way to get all the people away so that he can then talk to her. And, mm, uh, and kind of impress her. She's sort of like impressed by the strategy, I think, of it. Yeah. And he's he's become the sort of the aggressor or the pursuer, you know? It's it's not just that he's become the pursuer. I, I think we have this incredible scene where they kind of move into his car afterwards. He brings mm-hmm. Kelly with him. Yep. And it really, really mirrors the earlier scene in the car where it's not just that he's become the sort of pursuer to Kelly, but he's really assumed this Lila position of being all of a sudden like head over heels, very strange. And she's mm. like... Kelly's resisting the same way he did. Like, uh-huh, we'll right. see. And I don't remember if it's here or a later scene where he literally says the same thing, like, we'll get married for 40 to 50 years. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, literally parroting Lila's words. I didn't and it's pick just, that up. That's great. And I'm just, I'm trying to understand, you know, where his character has gone. If it's that, you know, all along, he was just sort of fetishizing this idea of, you know, the Kelly, the leaving Jewishness. And this is just, he's found it. And we're finally seeing what he would have shown to Lila if she you know, represented that same departure. Or the other reading I had is that maybe this is just who Lila knew him as, you know, they they kind of have this refrain in the beginning, him and Lila, when they're leaving on their honeymoon, where they're just like, you know, like she, he keeps learning all these things. Like, I didn't know that about you. She's like, I guess you didn't know that about right. me. And she says, like, why are you being quiet the whole time? And and Lenny the entire time is like, I'm always quiet in the morning. And then later <laughs> says, why are you being quiet? He said, I'm always quiet at night. And it, you get the sense that <laughs> his personality must have flipped because, you know, we see in that early scene, like he was really pursuing Lila when he was trying to sleep with her. And right. I'm sure mm-hmm. it was physical and objectifying and, you know, not from a place of love, but I'm sure he put on a very similar, you know, routine that he's doing to, to Kelly right now. So I just, I, I wasn't sure what to get a read on this Lenny, if he's just playing his same old games again, and he's just doing the infatuation stage, that's going to kind of die down probably soon after he gets bored and he gets married and then gets bored. It does, or if yeah. this really was exactly, or if this really was this just like he's, he's found it, you know, in, in that scene I referenced later, he says, you know, thank you, God, I'm seeing your masterpiece. It's like, this is all he's wanted, you know, this perfect. I mean, there is such an allure of the other. Like, I think that, you know, Lila obviously comes from where he comes from. And, you know, I think, I mean, she, I think she does, 
I don't think she's a flawed character so much as the fact that he she she provokes him in that way. She irritates him. It's like he he just doesn't want it anymore. I think he he does want to go further, to be with a different right. kind of person. Like yeah. I think there is like much more appeal. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, just from an anthropological point of view, you just see he's in a totally different world. Um, he's yeah. like left his New York bubble. Right. Yeah. And so after he, you know, pursues uh, Kelly in the car, they start to uh, make out in the car. And then it's so- shortly after where they, they sort of play this game that we've talked about a few times. And then Lenny wears down the father's defenses and he gets to have a nice meal at the family dinner table. Um, Dad is still pretty silent and still pretty pissed that he's having this Jew sit at his table. Um, but thoughts on this scene? I think, you know, the mom, like you said, Esther, before, the mom tolerates Lenny and he's, you know, pretty charming to her. But the dad yeah, no, sees I think through. she's totally charmed. I think yeah. the mother is totally charmed by him. Um, Kelly's just kind of like, eh, I don't know. She doesn't Kelly, seem smitten by him. I think yes, Kelly is amused a game watching term, yeah. this whole thing because yeah. clearly yeah. she's seen like this before. She knows her dad. Sure. Um, I think I think she's sort of amused, and it's almost like she doesn't have a dog in the race, right? She's, right. She's like on, that She's on board for whatever happens, you know. She'll get told. She can like it's a fun. She'll be told what to do almost, you know. Yeah. I was gonna say. Well, we know that she is. You know, she's really like a you know a sort of daddy's father's girl. daughter, yeah. right? Daddy's girl, exactly. Daddy's, and she's father's father's daughter. That's how I was thinking of it. But, um, very, very formal, Harry. I, that's, that was the read I got. But um, she's definitely you know gonna do what he says, and she's, she's kind a good of girl. watching. Yeah, she's watching him as he's listening and he says that. And I think that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, he's sitting there thinking of this Jew at his table. I didn't read that as like overt anti-Semitism. You know, obviously that plays into his, sure. you know, giving the money and the way that he thinks about it. Although he does say, you know, I'm a rich man. You know, I deal with my problems with money. You know, he is that sort of, right. you know, quote unquote, like, you know, waspy, you know, stereotype that, you know, I know it's not exactly waspy, but I think his read is just, he's he's like, he sees the same thing that, you know, I think we saw watching the movie that Lenny yeah. is this, you know, lying schmuck and he's just sitting at the table like, right. I'm going to let him entertain my family, talk about, you know, the honest cauliflower and how this is all honest work and like part of the land of the earth. And, you know, he's like, I'm just going to sit back and watch it. And then he says, when he confronts him, he said, you, you learn a lot more about a person by, you know, listening and letting them speak than actually, you know, by talking to them. And he gets very excited about that. You know, yeah. Lenny is like, and, all right, all right. And yeah. And one thing we know about Lenny is that Lenny literally, I don't think we ever saw him really listen to anyone. We haven't seen him go a scene without, you know, just yapping his, his mouth off and just talking and just trying to fill the space. And it's they're, they're coming from total opposite places, which, like you're saying, it comes with some excitement because I think that's what's drawing Lenny to the situation. Right. You know, he wants to kind of be transgressive of his right. of his background and wants to go down this this new path. But it's so stark how just opposite these two men are, which is why they, you know, even when, you know, Lenny refuses the money, it's not like this moment of, okay, you pass the test. You really love my daughter. You can get married to her. It's the same reluctant. I did all that I could, you know, this guy wouldn't take my money. So I guess like, right. I don't have a choice anymore. They're getting married. Right. I mean, the Kelly's dad, just to, to touch on what you were saying, Lenny gets very excited about Kelly's dad saying, oh, I can tell a lot about a man, but what you said was a full, like, it was a total crock of shit. <laughs> like, right. I don't believe a word of what you said. What the hell does that mean? An honest meal. And like you said, Esther, that is when he starts to try to bribe him. And, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $25,000. And like you said, he doesn't take the bait. So ultimately, I think the deal is sealed. Um, 
the wedding is planned. And just as the first wedding happens, sort of rather abruptly and quickly, I think the next scene is the wedding. Is that right? I think so. I think yeah. so. And it happens just as quickly. You know, the Carpenter song is played yet again. And that's interesting, you know, comparing and contrasting the weddings. You know, one took place in a very small apartment. The other one is like this big uh, austere church and things like that. And, right. Uh, and it, it's this yeah. big Christian wedding with huge big crosses. Cross, and it, it's not cross, it's yeah. not even like a secular wedding. It's like a, a very Christian. Like he has. Yeah, yeah. And this is a parallel, right? We, we open the movie with that sort of big, icon, like iconically Jewish wedding to this one that's very identifiably Christian. Right. And it's just... It just represents the, the thing that we've been saying this whole time, this sort of total cultural flip. Like Lenny's apparently found what he wanted. It was never to be part of, he, he's fully managed to escape, you know, where he came from and has entered into the fold. He's married right. into this just whole well, he different doesn't lifestyle. Care. It's like he has, he doesn't have values. I think the value right. is getting the thing that you think you want in that moment. Right. I, I do like, think yeah. also like, you know, reading, because the film is absurd. I think reading back to it as like satire, also this idea of like, you know, I think the history of uh, Jews in America is so fascinating. It's different to where I'm from in Australia. And obviously, you know, it's generation where so many men from very Jewish families marry non-Jewish women, right? Mm -hmm. And it's almost like it's a, it's a satirical telling of like an intermarriage. That right. how does someone like that marry someone like this? Like, you know, it's absurd as it sounds. Right. Like it's, 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 you can laugh at it because it's, it's funny, I think, to the to the Jewish people that like you are like it's you're so us. Like we come from this world, but like <laughs> you're marrying this like how? Like how like does an that alien happen, almost. You know? Yeah. 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 I, it's it's that it's it's like that threat, you know, you sort of they you leave the the New York Jewish shtetl, you go on this vacation to sort of the exotic, you know, Miami, and all of a sudden it's just, you know, the right. first eyes that that this man lays that this Jewish guy lays his eyes on, it's all of a sudden like I mean it, Ooh, she's literally yeah. the first woman that he meets, you know, on the beach totally. that he even talks to. And it's yeah. just yeah, you know, that that's what happens. If you're if you're not if you you're spending too much time on your hair, you can't join him at the beach. Like that's <laughs> that's what happens. Your man gets just snatched up. Exactly. And it's clear that Miami's yeah. The furthest they've ever been from New York, right? This is a big yeah, trip for them, right. but like he still sure. he has to go further. He has to go to Minnesota. We have to talk about the final scene. It's right. amazing. Yes, I was just going to say. I think you know. Uh, thank you, Esther. I was just about to raise my little finger and say, "Let's talk about <laughs> the last scene." But you did. It. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you know, the last scene of the movie is the wedding reception. Everyone's schmoozing. Lenny is peddling his bullshit to any guest who will listen. Like you said, Harry, before he talks about not only taking from the land but giving back to the land. And just kind of like it's saying, funny because you think about fertilizer, right? You think oh, you're so full of shit, but you think about you what go. you put in the soil. That's I mean, great. he's talking to actual farmers. He's, he's in Minnesota. He's talking to right. farmers. Like I think it reads as is bullshit, but people being very polite to him. But I just like that he the way that the editing of this scene worked was like he's talking to guest A, and then we cut to some other B roll shot, and then we cut back to him, and he's having the same speech, but with like a different person. And it just but you keeps see the dad going. kind of watching, right? The dad yeah, is like, eye eyeing him throughout. You don't know where the wife is. He's sort of like she's off, and she comes over almost to like you know, hold on, hold on, I'm talking to somebody. He does it already. He pushes her away, like it's the thrill of the chase for this scumbag. And you know, the the film closes out with him sort of talking with just like two little children, him doing his same stuff, and then just like asking them about their mm -hmm. life. But then he takes this really like long sort of finally takes deep breath because he's got what he wants and he's just sitting there finally like all of his decisions for the past five days are finally just like sinking in and i feel like that's when he has this sort of uh sort of en enlightened moment or this just epiphany is the word i was looking for and then the film ends 
So thoughts on the last scene? He's sort of singing to himself. I actually think he's aloof. I don't think he's, I don't think much okay. is dawning on him at all. I think it's funny to, you know, contrast it with like that final shot of the graduate, right? Where, right, where right. you do see all of those decisions kind of dawning. Ah. Um, I think this is not that. I think this is him kind of, this is, this is the end. This is the end of the road for him where like, interesting. Okay. He has nothing to say to these people, you know, it's a slightly different ending in the short story. Okay. And because it's, because it is a short story, I think the satire is more forthcoming. Yeah. The very end of the story is at the wedding reception and he talks to the dad. And then at some point he's replaced with Kelly's mother and is talking to the mother. And the final line of the story is he seems to be hitting on the mother. The mother is now the object of desire. Uh, it's in one line. Yeah. It's one line. Yeah. And I had to almost like, it was a double take. I was like, oh, like, and, and it's funny. Um, but it's basically like the, the last thing he says to her was like, just, you know, don't say anything until I finish talking. Like, hear me out. Like, that's like the final line of oh, that gosh. story, which is such it's an amazing, amazing line. It's like, uh. he, she doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't say anything explicit. It's just like there, like, don't say a word until I finish. Just like, it's so perfect. So and and I think that ending, I think that doing that in the movie would have been, would have been too weird. Like yeah. it sort of becomes again, sort of psychosexual or like it's a little too perverted maybe. Sure. Like he's already done enough in the movie. Like he right. doesn't have to then, you know, turn to the mother, but you see, right. He's just, I don't know. It's like in that moment, he maybe has no needs. I think he's just an idiot. Yeah. I, just the, um, you were talking about him sort of singing to himself at the yeah. end and he's singing the song, the I'd like to buy the world a Coke, which is what I thought you were talking about, Daniel, in terms oh. of the recurring musical theme, okay. because that's obviously the song they that they were that singing. They sing that also earlier that in the car. Oh, that he calls out Lila for having a terrible voice and tries to like, you know, pitch correct her. <laughs> and all of a sudden he's humming it to himself. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what the reading is, if he's all of a sudden, you know, remembering what he gave up and remembering Lila or if he's just like, you know, one of the reads that I had was that it's just this, he's, he has this idyllic vision of the future, you know, that's from that famous Coke commercial that had just come out where Don everyone Draper. is sort of, exactly, the Don Draper one, where everyone is sort of standing <laughs> on this island and just singing about harmony in life. And it's just, I think that's just what he wanted. He wanted that sort of, you know, nice he's blonde happy, woman. He's happy. He's in his like happy place. And I think he's just casually singing his song and, you know, it's not being interrupted by, you know, what to him, his sort of nagging wife. It's now just yeah. like he can sing in peace. Like even, even at the reception, he doesn't like spend any time with Kelly, right? Kelly keeps no. looking for him and she's like, I'm trying. She's like, I've been looking for you. And he's like, hold on one minute. Like, you know, with these people right now. And it's just, right. he, he's the kind of guy who's the happiest with himself. You know, he, he sees these women in his life as objects and he, you know, takes them for what he needs. But other than that, he is just in his own world. He enjoys putting up this facade and I think he's just very self-satisfied. That's kind of how I read that, you know, singing that song again at the end. Totally. I mean, not too dissimilar from us being by ourselves at the movie. With that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with our reviews and ratings of the film, The Heartbreak Kid. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to Jews on Film. We're going to be discussing our ratings and review the film, The Heartbreak Kid. We're here with Esther Werdiger. During the break, you mentioned something about the title. Do you want to talk about that for a second? I don't really know what to make of the title. Like, I, it's compelling to me, like the heartbreak kid, like the, so the original short story is called The Change of Plan, which mm -hmm. really sums everything up yeah. in a way that's like very funny to me. Um, but, you know, for a movie, I guess you would want a different kind of title and it's definitely a snappier title. Like yeah. it almost promises something else, I think, because he's not like, 
I mean, he does. He really does break a heart, a heartbreak yeah. kid. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. But he they're does both make kids. It. They're both breaking hearts. I mean, I think uh, to some extent, you know, obviously Lenny's breaking Lila's heart. Is she heart. the heartbreak? Is she, right. Is but Kelly is just like, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll, I'll marry you, I guess. But she, at the beginning, she doesn't really like, you know, she breaks his heart a little bit. So I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. Harry, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I actually did some research into this oh. a little bit. I mean, I don't mean to set anything up because the, the punchline is I, I didn't learn so much new. I said, you know, what is a heartbreak kid? And most things kind of chased it back to this movie. And it's just, you know, I saw one thing that said someone whose heart has been broken and then they go on to break other people's hearts. You know, it's sort of this endless cycle of heartbreak. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's something you could read that that's sort of, you know, what they're kind of stuck in. But I, I have the sense that it creates this sort of continuity that like this isn't the end of the story for Lenny. And it's he, you know, broke someone's heart and he's going to break someone else's heart. And mm-hmm. he is he's the kind of guy that, like we just said, he loves himself more than anyone else. He's not really going to find, you know, happy marriage, I don't think is in his future. He is just going to continue breaking hearts. That's right. that was kind of how I read it. I read the title. We often talk about unmade sequels here. So in Heartbreak Kid 2. Lenny's Revenge in five days' time when we pick up the movie. Is he still with Lila's Kelly? Lila. Oh, exactly. Lenny doesn't need any revenge. He's he's the heartbreak kid. That's true. I do think she's better off without him, though. I sure. mean, do you think that they're still together, though? Do you think Lenny and Kelly will stay together for any amount of time, or is he going to move on to her mom, like she, like he did in the, she's, in the short story? She's in like is she in college, maybe? And like I think she's going to go Kelly's back to school. College. He's not going to. Yeah, he's not going to have the patience for Kelly to be in school. So I don't think that lasts very long. Okay. I think uh, I would think they do that. just because mm. she has she's they're in Minnesota, her family's there, yet she has such this she has this very strong foundation. Right. Um, maybe you know, maybe this is it for him. Like that's it's possible right. that he's found something so other to himself. Gotcha, I don't know, right. who knows, you know. I mean he's a narcissist, right? But he's also sure. like sort of a two dimensional character. So it's right. hard to I think that's but, yeah. easier with like, you know, I want to talk about like what we all thought about the film. So on the podcast, for those who are new. You know, we rate the film on a scale of one to five Jewish stars, taking into account things like cast and crew, Jewish content, like story, plot, and then also Jewish themes. And then also, thank you, Gil, we talk about whether or not this film is good for the Jews. Esther, do you want to kick it off? Um, that's It's a funny thing to rate the movie on because it's, it's very, um, yeah, it's like a checklist. Okay. I mean, Jewish director, Jewish writer, Jewish short, original short story writer, Jewish music. Jewish actors playing the Jews. Of course. Do you guys talk a lot about Jewface on the we do. on the pod? It comes up okay. almost we've alluded, we've I was gonna say we've alluded to it a bunch. If you want to even just like break it down now or or you could just touch on it, but we're yeah, there's yeah. Room well, it's to not talk so much relevant sure. to this movie. And I think back then Jewish no no. Right. I was gonna say Jewish characters were played by Jews. No, they actually weren't. But um in this movie they they are it's yeah. a very um this is a movie very 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 much made by jews it's jewish mm-hmm. satire right it's a jewish story it's seeing jews as central to the story and everyone else's other um it's about crossing over it's about assimilation it's about intermarriage it's about like betrayal it's about overbearing jewish families it's it has these jewish stereotypes it's set in these jewish places you know from new york city to miami beach um so why would it be less than five stars? I'm trying to think where to take marks off. I mean, to me, that's five stars. That's a lot of Jewishness. Okay. That's a lot of Jew. Coming in hot. Wow. Okay, Throwing great. it to you, Daniel. Oh, okay. Wow. You're playing oh, Kelly over not, here. Do we not each rate it? No, we do. We do. No, that's fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> We've just only given out very few five stars. So that's, that's like uh, a, yeah. 
it's a coveted rating, but but, I, but you also made the case for it. You know, yeah. you don't have to sort of pick myths just because this doesn't feel like it should be the five star movie if that's what it is. Right. There's grounds for that. I think to echo a lot of what Esther had already set up, you know, the cast and the crew, Elaine May, her daughter, uh, Jeannie Berlin, Neil Simon, uh, you Charles mentioned Grodin. Charles Grodin, sure. Bruce J. Friedman, but back rack. It's it's all there, cast and crew wise. I think, you know, obviously Sybil Shepherd and her dad are not Jewish, but I think that's sort of Oh, Sheldon Harnick. Sheldon Harnick, who wrote like Fiddler on the Roof. He's like a Broadway composer. Okay. I think he's in the credits for this. I think wow. he composed some of the score. Okay. And I actually think Elaine May was married to him for a time. Mm. Maybe. Wow. Also, she married her own psychoanalyst later on, but then they stayed together for a very long time. This is good hot goss. I love it. Fantastic. Uh, I love gossip from like 40 years ago. Yeah, I know. It's like, where'd you find that out? Page six? No, Wikipedia. <laughs> Very much Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of the content, I think this is sort of where I think, you know, for me, content wise, it's just like a, it's not a Jewish story. There are Jewish elements and Jewish themes of it, but like, it's just like a love story sort of. And like, he loves one girl. He doesn't love one other girl. And like the fact that she's Jewish it's it's very much a part of the film, but I'm going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more picky. You know, I think I'm as Harry knows, I'm a little bit more like literal in terms of like, you know, if it takes place in the old country and it has rabbis and it's at a yeshiva, that's like for Jewish story. Like that's a Jewish story for me. This is more of like a love story thematically, I think, is where it shines. Right. So I think obviously you have the Jewish and not Jewish women in the movie and like the identity of of but like he is not a very strong Jewish character himself. Like he's like nebbish and like like you said, like a schmuck, and he's got brown hair, very skinny, not like buff and big, like these blonde, you know, superheroes that Kelly hangs out with. I think I'm gonna come in at around like three and a half or four stars. Harry, what about yourself? Well, before I jump in, was that three and a half or was that four stars Ooh, or three seven from, five? Because uh, you didn't really resolve that. No, I, I would didn't. love I, to know. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean <laughs> Hmm. I, I feel like I, I want to go like three just, just for the record. For the Don't record. say anything that you'll regret later, Daniel. I don't want to get exactly. canceled for my rating. Uh, how about 3.75? That's very pitchfork of you. Yeah. It's <laughs> a good That's call. Out. Harry, what about yourself? What do you think about this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, the cast and crew you, you both pointed out is undeniable. There, there's a real Jewishness to this. And, you know, I mentioned this in the beginning that the sort of the, the one of the first uh, plot summaries that I didn't read this one, but it just it identifies their characters as Jewish. And that that's clearly a part of the movie. You know, a lot of what you read about this in reviews, the way that its legacy has has let has carried on is as this you know, very Jewish film. I, I also think that thematically, like, I, I love the read that you had Esther just talking about how this sort of the satirical story of, of these sort of, you know, and, and giving that necessary context, I would say about these sort of Jews, you know, these Jews intermarrying out in this sort of time and, and kind of dr being drawn to this, whatever, this ideal object of desire. Yeah. This, this object of desire, this, this idea. Exactly. The term shiksa to me is not derogatory. It's, it reflects worse. It reflects on him somewhat uh, derogatorily. No question. The shiksa herself is 
blameless. No, I, I definitely think this is. I, I think that's a huge part of this because I think that this is about a cultural escape, you know, him leaving his Jewishness and kind of looking for, you know, this sort of objectified sense of otherness, you know, whatever that means. And that's sort of that, that idea of non-Jewishness. You know, I heard this comedic bit, you know, the, the kind of notion of the idea of non-Jew implies that like the Jews would be the majority, which is like so far from the truth, the fact that <laughs> right. they kind of see themselves or that we see ourselves as sort of it's Jews and non-Jews. But, but right. that really seems to be this point of attraction for him. You know, he he is looking for something more othered. And, and right. I think that's represented in the structure of the film itself. You know, we talked about how he has that first sequence, you know, that, that whole obviously honeymoon sequence where he's with Lila. And then at some point in like the halfway point of the film, he kind of says goodbye to her. He dumps her at that restaurant and, and literally we don't see her for the rest of the movie. And I think that's it. what, and I think what that does structurally, it takes the film. It's not just about him pursuing this Kelly character and pursuing her, you know, ideals, but there's a real, I think this momentum of sort of shedding his Jewishness, we get an entire half of the ah. movie for him to push back against his Jewishness to kind of be grossed out and roll his eyes at, you know, all like, like I said, the sort of Jewish mannerisms of his wife and kind of push himself aside from his first wedding. And basically the second half of the movie is him pulling himself into this new culture and embracing, you know, what ends up being his future wedding, the, the very Christianized wedding, the very, right. you know, he's just sort of embracing the land and this whole, this whole new gimmick. So because of that sort of structure thing, I just feel like this isn't just, you know, the story of someone going on his honeymoon and then realizing he likes someone else. It really is. The movie does a, takes pains to show the culture of the people that he's going, that he's leaving and that he's going to just to show that this really is about him shedding his faith. And, and I think that's sort of shedding his culture, his Jewish right. culture. And I think that is that's so present and that's sort of inextricably linked to what's going on in the movie. So in that way, I think it feels very Jewish. You know, we said that there's a lot of content there. We said that, you know, he has like the whole wedding and there's a real Jewishness to this movie. Like I, I want to give it, let's call it 4.25. You know, I, wow. I think- Wow, okay. I think, yeah, All right. I, I think, you know, I do also like you, Daniel, sort of reserve some of the higher rankings for movies that really, you know, really What's kind of dwell in the like Jewish I mean, we just yeah. did a serious man. I, I was going to be... say a serious man. I think we gave a five and yeah. I think Yentl, I actually think you nailed that. Sure. But, <laughs> Called and it. I think yeah. that, but you know what? This reminds me of when we were discussing Clueless, which I would say is, you know, a much less Jewish movie than, mm -hmm. than this one is, but we had a guest on and, you know, Rachel Rosenfeld, and she was explaining that, you know, to her that sometimes when a movie doesn't necessarily name its Jewishness, but the Jewishness still kind of like pervades it and still kind of is so clearly part of the movie and just like the sensibility of it, like that is almost, you know, more Jewish to a certain extent, because it's right. not trying to show you it's Jewishness. It just, it is it Jewish. Is. And, is. Yes. and this movie really has that. And, you know, I hope I didn't lock in my last score because I kind of just talked myself into a 4.5. And oh. that's, that's, that's where I'll, I'll unprecedented. Because, but I, I do think that this movie is just, in the comedy itself, you know, we haven't even broken that down so much, but in just sort right. of the Elaine May sensibility of it all, like sure, sure. there is, there is such a Jewishness to this movie. You didn't need to, you wouldn't have needed to tell me that this was made by an entire, entirely Jewish cast and crew because it's, it's just there. It's, it's part of the movie and it really works its way. I think into, it adds a, a meaningful and significant layer to, you know, what otherwise is this sort of story of infidelity. Like it really is about Jewish infidelity to a certain extent. Oh my gosh, I do think it's so Jewish. I'm also now thinking, I'm sorry to be jumping around, but like the eating in the movie. So you have you have Lyle and the exile, <laughs> mm. which is such yeah. a good I wrote scene. That down I, don't know, as, as I, don't, so I don't know why that scene yeah. isn't like totally iconic. I love it. Egg salad, anything made from hard boiled eggs to me is a food I'm honestly phobic of. Like it's oh, it's I'm so, so revolting to, to me. Deviled eggs are so good. <laughs> 
we joke about it so much at home. Like there's there's such a good like 30 rock quote. Oh my god, what is it? When um when Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy are having one of their conversations and Liz Lemon is like eating a hard boiled egg or something, and she's like, I'm eating a hard boiled egg. Do you know what that means? And he says that this conversation is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, now that scene, and then Kelly, do you remember when she when she um at the bar when she says thanks for the nut? <laughs> like you actually really never see Kelly eat. And then also, you oh, know, you have Lila um and the lobster, like the lobster is this illicit the thing yeah. right it's very exciting and very foreign but he's literally about to be like well screw that like you know i want to go further than that like this the i don't know just the positions that lila is put in like as a character in the movie because she's really kind of played to be the fool but i i do think that Jeannie berlin like truly transcends it she's not a, she she plays her so well she's so earnest she's so in love she's just like a person yeah, I, I think you're totally right about that. And I actually think that's a good segue into our uh, our follow up question that we mentioned at the top, you know, is this good for the Jews? Like, and I think that a lot of the answer to that question is based on how you view these characters. And I don't need to leave this one off, Esther, if you want to finish that thought about Lila and just say, you know, how do you think this reflects? How do you think someone watching this will feel, you know, about quote unquote, the Jews kind of following this movie? Well, the, the 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 bad Jew in the movie is him. Like she's she's. I feel bad for her. There's a lot of pathos in her character. Like she's it's she's it's like poor girl, you know. Totally. Is it good for the Jews? I I think about this a lot actually um, with TV writers that I think about so many of the American Jewish stereotypes that are very negative um, are created by Jewish writers in, in yep. television, mm-hmm. and it gives people permission to kind of invest in those archetypes or people who don't really know Jews to understand Jews in this way. Oh, you're neurotic because of Jerry Seinfeld or um, things like that, or just the idea of the Jewish mother on film, or even like in literature, you think of like Portnoy's mother or things like that. Like it's almost like the broader American public is given permission to understand these archetypes because they're written by Jewish characters. To me, none of that is good for the Jews in some way. I mean, I'm so glad that um, these texts exist and I love that the I love the imprint that Jewish people have had on America culture. It's totally singular. Like that, it's not like that in Australia, you know. I love it. It's it's something that I love about America. But there is there's such a dark side to it. Um, that permission that I think is implicitly given. Um, and and I hate. I wish there was a better term than a self hating Jew. But you do have this generation of people that were desperate to get out of it, right? right like right. Lenny, for example. And, you know, all these people in Hollywood, I mean, most of them, I mean, if you think about it at some point, you know, and married to a non-Jew, like it's sort of, it's like a cliche. Um, And there is something self-loathing about it. Like, yeah, I don't know what to make of it, but I go back to that idea often um, when I see those characters on on television, which is why to me where you, where you see them more. So is it good for the Jews? I don't know. Maybe it's not relevant. Like it's a Jewish, I do think it's a Jewish story. And again, I I like the Jew, I mean, the Jewishness is named, right? You have a very Jewish wedding. Sure. But in terms of being used against him, like that's no one, these people seem, these Minnesotas, people seem very pure of heart or something like they're, yeah. They also just seem very like mean spirited. Like the dad represents sort of the evils of of the non-Jews and like what, you know, well. No, he's he's like the gatekeeper. He's like the gatekeeper. But I don't right. think he's—I don't think he's villainous or mean or anything. I think he's actually kind of being a good dad. He's like, "Who the hell are you? You're full of shit. Get sure. away from my daughter." Right. Yeah. That, that there's that take for sure. I mean, he represents sort of the ugly side. Like he's willing to get like pretty dirty in terms right. of like 
resort to violence and bribery to keep this Jew well, away from his like, non-Jewish. He doesn't negotiate with Kelly. Like that's where the negotiation is. It's between him, between him and the dad. Right. It's interesting. Hmm. So you're locking in your answer as I'm not sure. Is that where we're settled? <laughs> yes. Okay. Harry, what about you? Good for yeah. the Jews. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you, you made a very uh, compelling argument just for the the sort of permission that's sort of given. And, and that's something that we don't necessarily always interrogate in terms of this question, but it's obviously very relevant is, you know, who is actually good for the Jews to who, you know, who is watching this and how are they watching it? And I think in the context of this film, I kind of, you know, obviously all the all of our lead characters are Jewish. And if you read sort of Lenny as this sort of Jewish stand and, you know, that's that's kind of an awful look. But, you know, the reason I was prompted to ask you about it, you know, following what you were talking, your, your defense of Lila was because I think she I, I wish she got some resolution and I wish we kind of came back Agreed. to her and she got this sort of empowerment. But she is a very sympathetic, sympathetic character. Nothing she's doing is overtly antagonistic. I mean, she's really just being herself. Like she's talking to him. She's asking him questions during sex because she just needs some reassurance. You know, she's singing in the car because she enjoys singing. She like he gets upset at her for eating a chocolate bar. Like she didn't deserve any of this. And I think, no. you know, and I think there's like I think we're supposed to be upset with, you know, Lenny. And like I said, in, in the context of this read about him forsaking his Jewishness and going and trying to take on this new culture. Like we're supposed to feel like, what is he doing? Why is he trying to, what is he leaving? What great he already has. And first of all, I just wanted to note, I mean, I I think what you said about that gatekeeping is, is very, uh, is very astute because I think that that's, you know, that he rep his, you know, Kelly's, Kelly's father represents the sort of last gate, you know, that last before he can cross that threshold and, and kind of, like I said, forsake, abandon his Jewishness, which, you know, not as relevant to the question of how Jewish is the film, but I, I wanted to note that I, I like the language you used. But I like, I, I do think that I watched this movie very sympathetic to Lila's character. And you got, you know, this very layered portrayal, I think, of the sort of Jewish, you know, units at the beginning, the sort of Jewish uh, wedding, and then the Jewish, you know, how that Jewishness kind of prevails. And yeah, I, I don't think you would watch this coming out and thinking that there was something about, you know, Lenny's Jewishness that I guess made him any more villainous as if we want to call him than, than he already was. So, you know, I, I read it kind of like this was a really cool portrayal of, you know, 1970s New York Jewishness. And it wasn't the the most, you know, the most uh, like praiseworthy sort of portrayal. You know, we've spoken about some movies that are really like glamorizing, like the Jewish experience. And it's like, you know, that's when I would want to show off to everyone. See, look, we can be, you know, we talked about Inglorious Bastards, like, look, we could be tough too. And, you know, this, this definitely isn't that movie, but in terms of like spotlighting a moment in, you know, Jewish cultural history and, you know, 1970s New York and just showing some pretty sympathetic characters, you know, in addition to some of the other ones, I think it's pretty good for the Jews. I, I enjoyed this. This was like, you know, Elaine May, great Jewish female director in the 70s, putting out an awesome Jewish movie. Like, I'd call this good for the Jews. That, that's kind of where I would weigh in on that. Uh, Daniel, how do you feel about that? Where where would you weigh in? I definitely, you know, I think Esther sort of convinced me in terms of Lila's. I, I loved Lila from the beginning. I initially came in thinking she was someone that we should be pitying and things like that. But I almost think she offsets Lenny's sort of amorality and just sort of his moral bankruptcy and just, you know, his, his shittiness, his overall scumbagness, whatever. He's quite devious where she's sort of guileless. Yeah. And and she's able to kind of like balance it out almost like, whereas he's so awful. And I think, you know, her, her heart is in the right place. She's so sweet. She's so caring and considerate. 
and she's got these she amazing outfits. She and she, I mean, she's a woman after my own heart. She loves egg salad. Like you love egg salad. Know, I love egg salad. It's a good. I've you never know. had egg salad once in my life. Okay, we'll talk. But after I understand the what it represents for people. You we'll know, we'll send I mean. you a gift basket of egg salad. <laughs> Hopefully, it'll keep. But you know, I think, like you said, Harry too. I think Elaine May being like a female director, uh, you know, identifiably Jewish and things like that. I think, you know, that's like a strong thing. I'd come out almost like even, right? I think, I think overall, the takeaway is, and and Kelly is, you know. She doesn't really factor into this equation, but I think, you know, between Lila and Lenny, I think, you know, it's sort of like veering on not so great for the Jews, but then Lila kind of turns it around. So we're kind of almost even like meh, I guess, you know, the non-Jews also don't look that great in this film as well. So it's kind of like everyone kind of <laughs> ends up looking, you know, not so great, but uh, yeah. So that was our review of The Heartbreak Kid. Esther Werdiger, thank you so much for being here this evening, staying up late for us. I really appreciate that. You too, Harry, on the East Coast. My absolute pleasure. Is there anything you'd like to plug at this time? No. <laughs> Nothing. Not a single thing. You were in the 100 Most Jewish Foods in the World book. I saw your name. Well, in we there. also, those those are like big staff projects. So, oh my gosh, that was so funny. That was such a fun project. Oh, so, so plug it a little bit. Talk about that. That's so cool. Every couple of years, there's a big kind of the staff get together and they do like 100 Most Jewish Books. They've done movies actually, but that was before my time. And I think uh. maybe at some point they'll do it again. Um, but the one I was involved in was, um, oh, totally, was... Um, 100 Most Jewish Foods, and the idea was that if you could make the case for it, right? Because some mm -hmm. things it's like, well, that's not very Jewish. If you could make the case for it and then you could write about it, like that would make that that would make the list. Um, and I wrote a couple of them. The the I wrote one about tuna salad, tuna as Americans say, which is my tuna. egg salad, right? Yeah. Tuna is my, that's my egg okay. salad. I would never say ride or die, but it's probably my ride or die. But yes, I wrote a little essay about it that that um, is actually one of the f easiest and possibly like best things I've actually written, actually. And it was about this idea of the the tuna bagel. Do you know what a tuna bagel is? Tuna bagel. What's a tuna it's bagel? Like a, right. So if you if you come from a very Hasidish background and you're not so Hasidish anymore, but you still you still go you still order a tuna bagel. Okay, love it. It makes me laugh. So it's this idea that um, when you're kosher ish. But you're in on, you know, you're at a diner or something like that's the thing you can have. You can always oh, have like okay. a tuna sandwich. But um, it's yeah, you should read it. It's very fun. Okay. So that's already from several years ago, but that's fun. We've worked on a few. We also made a big Jewish encyclopedia where I wrote a few entries. I the one I'm that's come to mind now is about Elaine Bennis, who I loved writing about. That was really fun because well, she's so Jewish, but she's playing a shiksa also. That's kind of such right. an interesting character. But didn't they make them change the George and Elaine to be non-Jewish? Like they were originally written as Jewish, but then they said well, the change. Of all the Seinfeld characters—they're right; they're so Jewish, but they right. but but officially those two are not. Um, and yeah. you know, you meet her dad at some point, and her dad is is super waspy, uh -huh. um, but she's she's clearly so Jewish. Yeah. But right, no, that's such an interesting choice. But I just love her so much. Nice. I can talk about I can talk about Seinfeld for a long time. Fair. So. It's all good. Um, but yeah, no, that's all for me. This was really fun, and yeah. um, when I finally yeah. watched the Rod the Roof on Disobedience. We'll talk about it. Sure thing. Harry, you got anything to plug? Nothing. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that everyone checks out Jews on Film on Instagram and TikTok. Make sure to subscribe and like our uh, podcast on iTunes. Guys, I've never, been on I've never been on TikTok before. 
apparently we're on there. That's what Terry tells me. He's our youth correspondent over there on the TikToks. Uh, but thank you so much, Esther. Thank you, Harry. Have a good one. And we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel and Harry edited this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.